0: So many candles, huh? And you see, they're not enough for today. The dead are more than these. Aren't you going to buy yours? They're cheaper for you.
1: No, thank you, no.
0: That's too bad. We've got to be nicer with the dead. Because we spend more time dead than alive.
1: Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
0: And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers.
1: We are at episode 144, back to Cole's Choice, your first choice after cole Are we going from the dark to the light?
0: Not exactly. We keep it a little spooky, actually, and we are talking about Macario today from 1960, and that's directed by Roberto Gavaldon and starring Ignacio Lopez Tarso, Pina Pellicer, and Enrique Lucero. The Amazing Cinematography is courtesy of Gabriel Figueroa, and it was written by B. Traven, who most American cinephiles will probably recognize as writing the source novel for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre.
1: B. Traven, I discovered, is pretty interesting, kind of a shadowy figure. Mm-hmm. That could have been the pen name for up to three different people. And Gavaldon ended up doing a trilogy of B. Traven's works, this was the first in that trilogy. And this adaptation is based on his novel, The Third Guest, which was inspired by a brother's grim story, Godfather Death.
0: Well, that title's a little on the nose because this is about a poor woodcutter who is pushed to the brink by hunger and poverty, who encounters the devil, God, and the personification of death, the latter of which bestows upon him the gift of healing. Now, Gavaldon was an interesting character, I think. He had a reputation for being a hard case, a stickler. I get the impression he was something like a Mexican Kubrick, for lack of a more apt comparison. He had a perfectionist streak. He shot multiple takes to get just what he wanted. And the cumulative effect of all of this was that his work was viewed by some as a little sterile, a little precise, technically accomplished, but a little cold, hence the Kubrick comparison I'm making here. He even went as far as to have a code of conduct on his sets. So did that come through to you here? Did this film feel accessible or distant to you for any of these reasons?
1: It definitely did not feel inaccessible to me. And I didn't know of that reputation beforehand. I really felt like in this, I was being invited to explore each character and each situation and question how I felt about each in turn. I think we've got to go back to that source material, at least in part. There's so much bitter life thrown into this. And I didn't realize he had a real noir streak prior to this film. And before Macario, he had a set of frequent collaborators that really ended before this film began. So he had been used to working with these folks, very famous cinematographer Alex Phillips, The writer Jose Revotas, who was so frustrated by the lack of control in the films that he wrote, he basically quit working with Gavaldon in 1956. So then you have Gabriel Figueroa coming on board, and he started as a stills photographer. He had actually worked under Greg Tolan in the U.S. before coming back to Mexico, and he kept working up until 1986. And then you have the writer who adapted this work, Emilio Caballido, and this was very early in his film career, which went on for many more decades. So I wonder if there was just a little bit of a departure here, if there was just a little bit of a fresh take on something that I think
0: comes through. Well, either side of that time period, taking all of that into account, you can't argue with results. In 1994, Somos, a prominent Mexican magazine... They did a sight and sound type poll, a list of the greatest Mexican films of all time, and eight of the top 100 films bear Gavaldon's name. That's big. That's a dominant showing. We are talking John Ford, Steven Spielberg, Alfred Hitchcock kind of numbers, and that's the kind of company that we should be thinking of him being in. And Macario isn't even considered his greatest film. It's ranked sixth among those eight, and I think it's a masterpiece.
1: I'm with you, and it just means we've got to jump into the rest of these masterpieces.
0: Now, in terms of the show, in an odd coincidence, this is the second significantly spiritual choice of film in a row for me. I am not a person of faith, but I think this fits in a spectrum that even we heathens can still appreciate. That includes everything from A Christmas Carol to The Seventh Seal. But does your philosophy about those matters interfere with or enhance how you approach films like this or just film in general?
1: You know, I guess it has to, because I'm no longer a person of faith either. But part of that having none or having some still comes with, I think, reckoning with how you make your decisions and how your life and your death both work together. And, you know, I'm pretty interested in end of life stuff anyway. So this is pretty fascinating to me. So I started off by saying, you know, my lack of faith must inform how I see this, because without giving too much away right now, I almost couldn't get past one of the issues that we come up against almost right away. This poverty struggle that is, at least to my mind, made worse by the religious or at least traditional rituals that govern our mores. Speaking of, though, this film fitting into our other recent choices, we've got Black Narcissus coming up. And one thing that did strike me when we first see Macario coming home and we see the mountains in the distance, it reminded me of Black Narcissus, some of those landscapes. And it just made me think of the poisonous nature of religion. So I must have all of that in my head right now.
0: Well, as it pertains to art, some things I definitely give more leeway or credence, For example, if a film wrestles with a larger metaphysical question, regardless of where it's coming from, I always can appreciate it more if it's not claiming to have the answer. But like you, I certainly do admit my biases. I will always choose Ingmar Bergman over the latest Kevin Sorbo vehicle, for instance.
1: Kirk Cameron, where does that fall for you?
0: Do you mean on the evolutionary scale?
1: (laughs) Are you ready to leave those behind?
0: oh good great (laughs) well i'm ready to leave this behind this section here and move on to discussing the movie proper and it starts with a text screen explaining the day of the dead which serves as the backdrop against which all the action of the film plays out and then we have a number of shots of related decorations church spires, and processionals, I really like that we're offered at least this brief introduction to the holiday itself, together with all this striking imagery to accompany it. And for the uninitiated, the Day of the Dead is a holiday that's widely celebrated in Mexico from October 31st to November 2nd, and it revolves around people gathering to pray for and remember loved ones who have died. This does not happen in any morose way, but instead it's a celebration. It frames death as just another part of life, and you will frequently see altars and gravesites covered with flowers and food and other gifts, and people will often gather there to commune with their loved ones who have passed. I love this holiday and the embrace of the idea that death is not to be feared. I think it's a beautiful tradition We're really lucky here in Austin because the Mexicarte Museum here does an annual exhibition with community altars and artwork. It's one of my favorite events every year, and they are currently in the middle of their 37th annual celebration. So if you are in Austin or coming here anytime in the near future, you should go check it out. It's really wonderful. Now, all of this did make me wonder, though, if American knowledge of Mexican culture was widespread enough in 1960... For this to be somewhat of a known quantity, or if maybe instead it seemed scary or odd or unholy or primitive because we have, for example, all of these altars piled with skulls, not something you usually see in the United States in a Catholic church. But then I came around to, who am I kidding? What American audience saw this in 1960? Most likely. I will say this is one of the few that our old pal Bosley Crowther, he actually got right. He was enthusiastic about this film, but I'm not sure that that positive notice encouraged New York Times readers to go out and see this in huge numbers. And I think the awareness of the holiday in general is a much more contemporary thing. I know people that say that in the 80s, for instance, it was not widely observed, but then things happen like in 2008. It was added to the UNESCO list of intangible cultural heritage. So it raises the profile. Now, is this a holiday that you've been aware of for a long time? How does this figure into your life?
1: I feel almost completely ignorant. I know virtually nothing about it. I know more slightly now because of the episode. But really before that, it was just sort of about face paintings for me. I wonder how I get to be 45 years old without knowing more about it.
0: Well, you're coming from Idaho and Virginia, and to a lesser extent, Hawaii, where there's not a lot of emphasis on it, most likely.
1: I had the mistaken impression that it was more about celebrating the macabre. That just comes from my tradition of seeing skulls, and that represents something specific to me.
0: That being Halloween or your interstate murder spree? A
1: little bit from both columns, I would say. What's really fascinating to me now is learning about some of the controversy around it. There is some discussion. Was this actually an indigenous Aztec tradition? Or was that more of an apocryphal story and instead it's a fully Spanish tradition? Because at least in part... It was co-opted, in a sense, reinvented as part of a nation-building push in the 30s. And then back to your question about how much were audiences exposed to this at the time, there was definitely a downturn in Mexican cinema around this time, so I'm not sure how many options audiences would have had to be exposed to this. And I wonder, too, How much travel might have been happening where you could be exposed to this one-on-one? You could actually see this taking place.
0: It is one of my travel dreams to be in Mexico City, to observe the celebration of this. I cannot wait for that to happen one of these days. It's definitely on my big list of things to do. But I can vouch for it not being a widespread thing up until fairly recently, at least in the United States. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, she was half Mexican and half Comanche. That's where I get all of my indigenous blood from. And I know throughout my youth, she never celebrated it. It was only once I moved to Austin, it became a thing that I was really aware of because with our proximity to Mexico here in Texas, obviously we're going to get some of that cross-cultural pollination.
1: What I do though really respond to, regardless of any sort of specific culture, is this tradition of folklore. That's something that definitely speaks to my Virginia growing up.
0: Yeah, and it's that folklore actually that allows us to get into other little parts of it. It uses folklore the way that societies often do to impart these lessons or to say something that is not exactly what you see on the surface. Because built into this celebration, we see that there are class issues even among the dead. It's really bracing to hear Macario's wife explain to their children that this is what our dead eat because this is what we eat. The implication being that even the afterlife does not free you in this regard. And the film emphasizes these differences in all sorts of little ways. For instance, his wife is clearly made up to be darker when interacting with a wealthy family for whom she does laundry. It's barely perceptible, but it's there and it's working on the viewer in an almost subconscious fashion. And specifically in terms of folklore, this is designed as a parable. And this parable, it lives right at the intersection of melodrama and magical realism. And I think people tend to give critical weight more to the latter, especially in this case with the significance of magical realism in Latin American literary tradition. But melodrama, I think, is just as indispensable to this and to Gavaldon's career as a whole. I think we're both of the same mind when it comes to modern interpretations of melodrama in that we both like all kinds of variations on that style. Almodovar, Joseph Losey, Fassbender, Todd Haynes, maybe Cirque to a lesser extent for each of us. Why do you think melodrama gets the short shrift sometimes? How do you feel... this either succeeds or doesn't on that level.
1: I think there's definitely an opinion out there, and we can agree or disagree, that melodrama at its worst is overdone and overblown and unreal, not in terms of magical realism, but in terms of we can't believe people would actually act that way.
0: You have to throw out a whole lot of cinema if that's your objection to anything.
1: Absolutely. And Those same people, I think, would say that melodrama is outdated. So that's not where I fall. I think it's a great idea to set this film during the colonial period because it allows us to embrace that magical realism and also the melodrama. It becomes so easy to imagine this story as real during that period. And then by the time the Inquisition arrives, it just seems like a distant memory rather than this very cannily told tale that can apply to any period. So when I said earlier that I tended to think of the Day of the Dead as being macabre, it is in a sense. It's macabre here, it's dark, it's morbid, and it's also pretty funny.
0: Yeah, I think these broad sorts of melodrama strokes are perfect for parable. If you are attempting to impart a lesson on a grand scale, you make the signifiers widely understandable and relatable. And I don't want to conflate that in this case with dumbing anything down. That's not what I'm saying at all. There is a lot of room for nuance in Macario. It just sits comfortably side by side with exaggerated drama and these supernatural notes. And one thing I think that you were edging up to just a moment ago, I am intrigued by the nature of the celebration as it applies to some of these participants it calls into question for me the validity of what could be considered wasting food and resources for ritual when people are going hungry. And what I'm balancing in my head here is the long history of the participatory demands the church makes on its most vulnerable parishioners against the sincerity in the sacrifice that people are making that is clearly very personal. It is a direct communion with memory of their loved ones that the church is not immediately involved in at all. So that reverence, it helps me understand. And ultimately, I have to come down on the side of let people do what they want and work out their own peace of mind. But were you thinking similar things?
1: Yes. Like I was talking about earlier, I almost couldn't get past it. It just seemed to me a black and white proposition. Why are you giving food to the dead when you can't feed your family?
0: We're obviously coming at this where this is not a huge part of our culture. So what would be a question to us is not even a consideration for them. And I do love to see everything that is involved around this celebration. I will say it's wonderful to see the energy and the love that is devoted to the crafts and the handiwork, the sugar skulls, the bread, the lace, the candles.
1: Because you mentioned going to Mexico City, and this is in a small village, and they're still going all out.
0: This meeting with the Candlemaker, actually, is one thing that I wanted to ask you about. You were really taken, I think, with the sentiment that was expressed by the Candlemaker, so much so that we chose that for the opening scene, we spend more time dead than alive. What was it about that whole interaction that really resonated with you?
1: It just completely turned my viewpoint around. It gave me, I felt like, so much insight, or at least some insight into something that I don't have any experience with.
0: Now, did this immediately change how you felt about what we were just saying, about what Anglo audiences might consider the waste of resources?
1: It does and it doesn't. It at least gives me a chance to think, okay, I need to remove my own innate prejudice around it. And at the same time, and I think this is also a point of the directors, when we again look at the time period that it's set, it makes me then, I think, turn a correctly questioning glance back to the church. If we look at that time, if you're a student of art history, you know this, if you're a student of history in general, you know this, the clergy was just a job like any other and you could buy your way into it and you kept getting money to stay in it. And when we see these celebrations take place in this small village within these amazing cathedrals, you have to think of the reality of what you're looking at. At best, these artifices were built by underpaid workers and at worst by slave labor. So while all levels of society do participate in this to the degree of their own wealth, There's still so much, to me at least, colonialism built into it.
0: I guess we do also have to consider the fact that it would be a boost to the economy for these less wealthy craftspeople.
1: It is, and then still, somebody's always going to be on the bottom rung. I still do find that concept fascinating, though, of the communion with the dead. I just always wonder, where did it originally come from that made you think you needed to give your own resources for it? it seems like it's being taken out of the purely spiritual realm and into the earthly realm. But I want to say again, those are my innate prejudices and biases talking. So I love to hear other perspectives on that. I was so grateful for that scene. It just opened my mind in a way I didn't expect to happen.
0: And there's actually even more to it. The part that resonated with me, our opening scene cut it a little short, but that candlemaker went on to outline a very particular philosophy regarding all of this. Life is nothing but toil and trouble, and we are dying from the moment we're born, from the sickness that we possibly carry inside us, or we even face the threat of a tree falling on us in our old age that hasn't even grown yet.
1: By the way, Macario's job is a woodcutter.
0: So we're all headed toward that meeting with our fate. Now, what I take from that is gather ye rosebuds while ye may.
1: Because the lifetime portion is the much smaller little bit of that candle.
0: But I don't think Macario has either the disposition or the luxury to think of it that way. Do you?
1: I think it's fascinating that you use the word luxury. I think that's right on the money. What the poor have to be concerned about is not the same as to the middle class or the rich.
0: It also reminds me of a little bit of one of my favorite passages in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead about our intuition and mortality. Out we come, bloodied and squalling, with the knowledge that for all the points of the compass, there's only one direction and time is its only measure.
1: Well, it's all come full circle at this point because at H-E-B we sell a Day of the Dead Barbie. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of toys and these sorts of figures... That night, Macario has an eerie dream, and he's visited by skeleton marionettes, which he then operates so that the poor dead vanquish the rich and take the spoils of their celebration. This is clearly class revolt, significantly something that is only an option that is available to Macario in dreams. Now this sequence, it ranks up there for me at least with some of the best of cinema's other surreal dream sequences. It makes me think a little bit of Dali's sequence in Hitchcock's Spellbound, the dreams in Bergman's Wild Strawberries, even one that we recently discussed on the show not long ago in Los Tallos Amargos. I think it's the dream that finally pushes him to the breaking point. It is chaotic, and I think he carries that with him from this point on. And when he reaches his limit, he decides that his solution is going to be to go off into the mountains and eat an entire turkey by himself, not having to sacrifice his share for the first time that he can probably remember in his adult life. It's understandable, this desire, but this is also clearly a sin. This is gluttony and this is selfishness.
1: To go back to that dream sequence for a second, I don't know about you, but I was almost waiting for the poor to then eat the rich. Yeah. And if we look at Gavaldon's other work, it's all about the world being unstable, and fate is frequently not kind.
0: That is a very film noir sensibility.
1: Definitely. And it strikes me here how interesting that this character, Macario, at this point, we've really only seen him dissatisfied, I would say. So I didn't expect his thoughts to go down this road. We don't really see the buildup. It's just implied. But I was so glad to see the non-beatific peasant representation. So right here, it feels like the world is so precarious, and it's ready to tip over, and somebody needs to pay attention. And I love that Macario is kind of the unlikely tipping point.
0: Yes, exactly. Interesting that so much could hang on what, even among his social circles, would consider someone who's not important. While I'm thinking about this, I don't want to forget. At first, the turkey seemed to me a little bit like a strange thing to fix on for him. It isn't something I immediately associate with the Day of the Dead and with my obvious cultural biases. It's more of an American Thanksgiving thing for me, obviously. So my first instinct is to interpret this as a symbol of wealth and abundance in contrast to Macario's hand-to-mouth existence and maybe just have that be that. When I looked into it, though, I found some fascinating stuff. I found that turkeys were often highly symbolic and occupied a special place in Mesoamerican history.
1: And they're indigenous to the Americas.
0: Exactly. And so, archaeologically speaking, you find more turkey bones in ceremonial spots than in garbage heaps, as it turns out. You find them in gravesites, which is an honor not given to other ordinary birds. In Aztec history, there is even a turkey deity the god of plagues. It's not a pleasant image. So sometimes a turkey isn't just a turkey. But back to a thing you were saying about the implied buildup. I get the feeling that Macario is a stoic, and he has been suffering in silence for a lot of years. And so his wife wants to do whatever she can for him in this regard, with this request.
1: Once again, I think luxury is the word to use here, because We think about him suffering in silence, but we don't think about her suffering in silence. She's the one who's always going to eat last, who's going to give up food if someone else can have some. And it's she who procures the turkey. She actually steals it, which feels so monumental here. And she confesses she also dreamt of having something only for herself that she would never have to share so finally she feels like a human too so it's probably only now that we're maybe as an audience questioning her role as the woman in the family and I think it's also fascinating to imagine she is the one who would ultimately receive the most punishment if her theft was found out if her husband was punished for doing something selfish or gluttonous She's a widow with six children then at that point. She's got no means to support herself. So how do we then see that? Her sacrifice to give him something.
0: I noted that too, actually. And I initially wrote it as sacrifice. And then I went back and corrected myself because it's not sacrifice even. She is more accurately taking extreme risks to pull all of this off. Does that feel equitable to you?
1: And I guess I really shouldn't look at it as a contest. Because it's not it's not pitched that way. She's trying to genuinely do something for the person that she loves.
0: Yeah, I feel that, too. It's all out of love and appreciation first. But there is a sense of duty also built into it that comes a close second.
1: I think you're right. And ultimately, I see, you know what, man, I get it. I understand why you want this thing just for yourself. But shut up about it right now. I don't want to hear about it. Maybe tell me after the Day of the Dead.
0: I do get the feeling, though, that he would make a similar sacrifice and take similar risks for her. But when do we ever get to see that movie? Right. And so Macario heads for the tranquility of the mountains with his turkey in tow. But he is accosted almost immediately by a well-dressed stranger just as he sits down to eat. And he is offered seductive deal after deal, each of which he smartly refuses. This is clearly the devil, obviously. We know this. And this encounter is excellent, I think. Especially that shot I love so much with the devil's silver spur spinning in the foreground. Beautiful shot.
1: And it was surprising to me. Macario sees through scam after scam. It's so brilliant. He doesn't fall for any of it.
0: And so he packs up his picnic and he moves on and he meets God next, who similarly appeals to him for a bite but again, Macario is wise to the deal, and even more significantly, I think, he denies God. This is huge.
1: It absolutely is, and God is presented in the same way as the devil, not larger than, not smaller than, just another soul or another being, with just another line of talk. And Macario says, for you, if I were to give in, it's just behaving well, but this means everything to me. So, I wonder, is that questioning our underlying problem with the Day of the Dead, or its contradiction built in for rich versus poor? And I appreciate more than anything these reactions to the devil and God, he treats them as propositions, rather than as sacred beings.
0: Yeah, it can't be overstated enough for me, coming from a culture so steeped in Catholicism, The first denial, that's a simple victory against temptation, I feel like. But this is refuting God's will. And then finally, he meets my favorite character in the whole thing, the personification of death. Death is hungry, and that is a powerful metaphor, I think. Enrique Lucero's depiction of death here is so great, he's powerful in ways that belie his gaunt appearance as just another hungry worker performing his harvest.
1: He's emaciated, but he's cheerful. And like you said, he's dressed as a peasant. So he's familiar. He's non-threatening. But Macario still plays the angle with him. He's still smart. And I love that death is the only real thing here that comes without a judgment.
0: And so to death, Macario capitulates. The gift of this turkey and the peace with which to enjoy it, he knew it was too good to be true. The thing that you said about his interaction with the devil that really underscores how much he has the wisdom of the working class. He's not going to be scammed, but instead he gives death a share out of pragmatism, knowing that of the three of these, this choice will buy him enough time to eat the maximum amount that he can. This entire sequence as he meets these three strangers and navigates his way through their requests is just fascinating to me. Like we mentioned a bit ago, Gavaldon is bringing... All of his experience with melodrama and film noir to bear on another major area of Latin American storytelling, that magical realism. And I think this is such a beautiful hybrid of the fantastic and the workaday. Macario has retreated to where he is most at home, basically, in the mountains where he labors alone to have what is ostensibly his last meal, only to have that interrupted by this succession of supernatural beings. And just like you said, these supernatural beings, they are not overwhelming or monstrous or caricatures. They feel like men, like any other, for the most part, with just a specific element or two slightly exaggerated enough for us to know who we're dealing with. It's a great blurring of the line between everyday reality and then something more grand, something larger than ourselves, and it makes it easy to see What would be seductive or compelling about these encounters? And so let's talk about here this balancing act of the celebration and joy of communing with the dead and the fact that, as it's presented to us over and over again, life is nothing but trial. Macario, all he does is toil strenuously and provides as best he can for his family, sometimes even coming home with simple gifts for the kids. But he does that with this ever-present, hunger and stress without any promise of relief. So it's not hard to see that death almost seems like a gift or a reward. At the very least, it's a rest and a reprieve from these pressures. It feels obviously very Catholic, very Mexican. So it's no mistake that death is the most charming and persuasive of the three figures, ultimately.
1: Because God is the one that's telling you, just keep going without giving you the reasons behind it. Just keep, I dare say, having more children, more mouths to feed because that's God's will, and the devil's the one saying, have some fun right now and sacrifice everybody else. But death, death is just doing his job. And then you get to have some turkey once a year with your family members forever after.
0: I don't know what I would choose when I think back at these figures that he's faced with. The devil is flashy But hunger can override the material rewards that he promises. God is all service and duty. But that relationship, like you say, it feels more like it's on paper than in practice. But death, this is who you're going to be riding with for a long time. He's real. It doesn't get any more real. So this is where the pragmatist would focus his attention. So I relate to that quite a bit. Maybe I would choose correctly if there's a correct choice to make. And if you doubt or are unclear at all why Macario would make this choice, look again at the backdrop for all this. We in the U.S. don't have a multi-day holiday dedicated to reckoning with mortality.
1: Uh, what is Coloween, then? <laughs> I mean, that's how I celebrate it. But that's how I celebrate every day.
0: Well, for his forthrightness and cleverness and generosity, death rewards Macario with water that has magical healing properties. He gives him a gourd full of water, a finite amount, we need to stress, and Macario soon gets his opportunity to test the veracity of death's claims on his own son who has fallen into the well and is at death's door.
1: And it is folklore, so let's put rewards in quotation marks.
0: Mm -hmm. He manages to save his son, and obviously word of this type of miracle is going to travel fast in this community, And he'll soon be called upon to provide his services as a healer far and wide.
1: And did you notice that the wealthier he gets, the more he becomes dressed like the devil when we first saw him.
0: He never goes full spurs, though.
1: He doesn't, but he's close. Those pants are pretty
0: close. And then meanwhile, elsewhere in the community, we see one of the more wealthy citizens praying for his sick wife, offering more elaborate decorations to the saint if the prayer is answered.
1: To see this bewigged man, who we know represents Spain and colonialism, praying for mercy for a loved one with a promise of some gold trinket is so grotesque and so accurate. I think maybe that's my favorite moment.
0: Well, this prayer, it certainly gets my attention. The implication here is one of two things, I think. Either that the saints have the same petty concerns as man, which is huge, or that Mankind, at least those fixated on wealth, can only understand the holy as they understand themselves and the world they move in.
1: And essentially, side note, your clergy at this time are your conduits to the saints, and they are your living saints. So giving money to them is your ticket through.
0: Well, based on what you're saying here... I think I know the answer, but did you lean one way or the other? How you interpreted this greed and avarice? Is it more a heavenly thing, an earthly thing, or was there something going on here that didn't occur to me, you think?
1: I think it's just the most poignant comment on colonialism and Catholicism going hand in hand at this time.
0: Well, to take it back to the working class here, Macario's relationship with death totally fascinates me. They're more than colleagues. Death likes to bust his chops a little bit. He toys with him while he's doing this healing session, for instance. There are repeated references to them being friends. But is that how it felt to you? How did all of that play for you?
1: I don't think Macario has the wherewithal to understand that death is not a human being. Not a being as we understand it. So they can never be pals. Death is going to do what death must do. There's no special consideration whether or not they are pals, because they're not our fellow beings. And to me, that lack of understanding, simply because you cannot understand the divine, extends to this reward or this gift as well.
0: I don't know. I think I buy into the friends thing a little bit more than you do. You say death can't have friends. Is that accurate?
1: Not exactly. I I just mean that... It's not friendship in the way that we interpret it. And it's only kind of a finite, ephemeral sort
0: of feeling. Okay. But if your view is that strict, wouldn't you also say, related to those things, that death likely wouldn't be playful or have the sense of humor that we see on display here?
1: I think that's Makaro's interpretation of death. I think he sort of sees what he wants to see, and then we're seeing his story. Because we can't always believe what we see. We'll find that out.
0: And Gavaldon actually has an agenda too. So we need to take that into account as well. Because we see all these little subversive things slipped in. For instance, do you think that Eulalia's exposed back was a little bit scandalous at the time?
1: I'm not sure because she's having a cupping ceremony. Which is very much tied in with the clergy as well. Sucking out the poisons. So I don't know that I have enough experience to say one way or the other how I read that.
0: Mm, that's the only time we see any expanse of skin. So it immediately gets your attention, I think.
1: Immediately gets Cole Lane's attention. <laughs> well, let's keep talking about this idea of how Macario sees this gift or this reward.
0: Exactly. I wanted to ask you that before we get out of this scene, actually, because this scene where he is healing you, Lalia, concludes with payment. And so immediately what comes to mind to me is, is it more significant that Macario asks to be paid modestly when offered more than that, or that he takes payment at all? Will there be repercussions for turning this gift into a commercial enterprise?
1: There's another subversive thing. He does a little bit of a game, a little bit of a negotiation, making this rich man think that he's initially going to ask for so much money. But I come back again to this idea, I think this comes from a mistaken impression. The first one being that he mistakes that he is in essence pals with death, which is going to give him a pass. So I really think he feels that this healing water has been given to him as a gift or a favor, or as a reciprocal gift for first getting the turkey. Because death tells him later, he never understood what he was given. So I think there's initially a sense of entitlement that has come with the healing water. It makes him think that he is the purveyor of it and therefore entitled to payment. And then within the story itself, within the time, it's practically revolutionary that he would ask for payment rather than towing the line of being this beatific peasant who doesn't need money. So here, he's a capitalist but not a dictator. And the rich man still takes a cut. And I see the rich man as the government, the church, all of it. So Macario still, even though he's becoming a bigger man, he's still a pawn.
0: Well, as you rightly pointed out, Macario and his family, they're clearly moving up in the world in terms of status and possessions, which I definitely think is not what, at least I assume death had in mind when he offered him that gift. When it comes to parables like this, it's built in, for me at least, I think you're probably the same. We understand this has to eventually all come down. And so I'm sitting here wondering at this point, as things begin to turn this direction, what happens when there is the inevitable failure? Because based upon the rules that death has laid out for him, Macario, at the very least, he understands that there are two ways that this can go, even if he's keeping everyone else in the dark about it, and they think that he can never fail. And I think he is genuinely doing a public service. I think that's in his heart. But that can be corrupted. For now, though, at least, he remains honorable. He doesn't collect payment the first time he fails or any time thereafter. He also doesn't discriminate. And he allows the poor to pay what they can for his services on a sliding scale.
1: I really like that the other neighbors seem to take all of this in stride, that some people are saved and some people are not. And they don't seem to begrudge him the growing success because they understand that death spares and takes equally
0: yeah but if he was charging them full price for the process do you think they would be as forgiving
1: good point it's really the doctor that drops the dime on all of this
0: so no competition no free market
1: exactly don't get in the way of my business and it's folklore so Could it go any other way that the ultimate final failure is going to be the most notorious one?
0: Well, there's a thing that happens here in this sequence when it is starting to unravel a little bit that I really love. In one of my favorite lines of dialogue, it is said of Macario that he smells like a person, like sweat. He's still a laborer, is basically what they're saying. And this reads as honorable to me, but it is significant that he is described that way by the forces looking to have him removed. Do you think that character meant that as a compliment?
1: I don't know that compliment is the right word because he would have different ways to describe everybody else. A rich man would smell like perfume. The clergy would smell like sage and money or gold, probably. (laughs) So it's definitely representative, but compliment? No, not exactly.
0: I'm giving away my bias there because that's how I interpret it.
1: Well, and think again of the time period The rich were just other beings than the rest of us. Think of the Sun King, for example.
0: Yeah, they are definitely looking for a foothold to punish or persecute him, for sure. There is another of my favorite little subversive moments here, too, when the church officials are discussing all this, just how to handle it. There's no room for heretics, obviously. But the church has to consider keeping those alms flowing. Maybe a little in for now is okay if it's filling the coffers. This feels to me like maybe the riskiest thing that Gavaldon put in the whole film. Or maybe, is this the riskiest question overall? Could God control this if he saw fit? Is death a rogue operator? With his omnipotence, the implication has to be that God is allowing this for some reason, right?
1: I love that you bring this up because I start to get into some minutia. So, is the movie making the case that God is omniscient but not omnipotent. I still see death here as not the same as God and the devil, who are essentially brothers. At the very least, I think this posits that it's a benevolent God who doesn't always have to make sense. And I think it's important as well. This takes place during the celebration of the dead, not Christmas or Easter, for example. This is not God's realm.
0: That is a great point. I didn't even think of that. What I was falling back on, free will and how that question is handled, it's obviously going to be a major tenet of any world religion. And if we're approaching this as coming from the Catholic tradition, it's like you imply that God is benevolent, but doesn't fully dictate everything. Man is considered capable of directing himself toward his true good. And that initiative comes from God, but it requires a free response from man. Not that I'm qualified to give a huge theology lesson here. So let's move on to something that I do know a ton about. One of the reasons I like this so much is that there are some parallels here with this and one of my all-time favorites, the devil and Daniel Webster. One of the major points being that Macario's wife is the one who makes sense and is right to be trepidatious about all this. And even Macario knows this because when the water supply is running low, he gives her a vial of water to safeguard for the family health. Which is good because soldiers come soon after and destroy all the rest.
1: So, is Macario greedy in the same way that Daniel Webster was? What's the difference, if any, in their motivations?
0: He's similarly simple, I think, but not a simpleton. I want to make that distinction. Gavaldon, I think you touched on this a little bit earlier. He has a thing for tormented characters that might not quite have the ability. To completely comprehend the nuances of their situation. Macario, though, to me, the character, he remains much more steadfast and noble in his intentions to me. He's never motivated by greed in the traditional sense. His worst crime might just be misapprehending the power of the gift and being a poor administrator.
1: Because I wonder sometimes maybe Daniel Webster was waiting to be compromised in Macario's troubles, okay, all Catholics put your fingers in your ears, Macario's troubles, I think, are his fecundity, which I see as a direct result of Catholicism and the direct result of colonial times, meaning that he's trying to become a gentleman.
0: Interesting, because I don't see those sorts of aspirations in him at all.
1: I think he adapts to that new house and all the possessions and the kids dressed one way very quickly. But there's no devil on his shoulder in the form of a woman like we have in Daniel Webster.
0: Well, maybe I'm just being obtuse then, because if this is built into his program, there truly is only one route to take to achieve what he wants, because we are talking about a very specific time frame. And I think what that contributes to this story is extremely interesting. This is colonial Mexico, like you said, New Spain. So there is definitely a significance to the cultural crossroads that this puts us at. And I think the one event, obviously, that we cannot overlook that overshadows all of this is the Inquisition. The Inquisition it looms so large over an immense part of this history. Just look at this one fact alone. The colonial holy office of the Inquisition was established in Mexico in 1571. Do you care to take a guess as to when it was disbanded?
1: 1998.
0: You give the Inquisition a little more credit than I did, but...
1: They heard the Prince was coming and so they (laughs) needed to get it out of the way.
0: I was really surprised to discover it wasn't completely disbanded until 1820. That's 250 years of Inquisition moving into what I think of at least somewhat modern time. So this allows Gavildon... To cloak some of his contemporary social criticism with the cover of this inescapable history. And Macario goes before the Inquisition. He's accused of being a blasphemer and a heretic. They devise a test for him. And you know how these Inquisition tests go. They're not exactly win-win. As you might expect, Macario's predictions are proven true. Hence, he is a sorcerer. And there is but one way out. Cure the Viceroy's son and all will be forgiven. Fail and be burned at the stake.
1: I love that we're being invited to ask how we reckon with our past, how we see our past, and then how do we see ourselves. And it's not yet the age of reason here, so even though the Viceroy doesn't believe in any of this, he still goes down that route.
0: Desperation will lead you to do a lot of things, especially when you are in a position that you can exploit that.
1: And like I said, we have to know that the final failure is inevitable. This is folklore, after all, and it doesn't go well for anybody.
0: Yeah, his old pal Death, or at least how I see him, he will not help him pass this final test, and Macario escapes back to the mountains, and in a nice bit of parallelism, he encounters the Devil, God, and Death again on this return trip. He finally reaches Death's home in the Kakawamilpa caverns, and this last scene is the most visually stunning thing we've seen in a movie that's full of stunning things.
1: Absolutely. The sea of candles, each candle representing a soul, a life.
0: Yeah, they are spread out as far as the eye can see, essentially. Macario demands to see his own candle, which is not very long at this point, which he then takes and flees. Even after working in concert with Death for so long, he still doesn't fully grasp it, the futility of what he's doing. He's been so busy with his specific concerns that he has missed vital lessons along the way, because who was it that warned him where this was all headed? The Candlemaker. That's such a nice touch.
1: Like I've been saying, us mere mortals can't really understand the implications of these other beings.
0: And so, as the sun rises on a new day, his wife and a search party find his body, implying Perhaps it was all a dream this whole time, and he didn't even get to finish his turkey.
1: And death didn't have a portion, so like you said, maybe none of it actually happened.
0: So, the end. I love this movie so much. This is going to slot neatly into my holiday viewing. I can see this being a Day of the Dead tradition for us for a long time. Were you as pleased as I was to encounter this?
1: Absolutely. I'm so glad that you thought of this. And I'm so glad that I'm expanding my knowledge finally about Day of the Dead. And it's just another access point into great Mexican cinema.
0: Exactly. That is why I chose it. I really hope that this serves to highlight just how much there is to discover in the film archives of Mexico. There is a rich and dynamic and varied motherload out there, and it's just waiting for us to dig into it. And what's especially cool about it is that during the golden age of Mexican filmmaking, the government actually encouraged creators to make films that articulated a true Mexican identity. So instead of trying to make more universal films that might de-emphasize these elements and sell it to a broader audience, there is a distinct cultural stamp on them that's a great window into the world of Mexico at the time. You've got accomplished directors like Emilio Fernandez, Fernando de Fuentes, and Ismael Rodriguez, Iconic characters like Cantinflas, great genre films, especially horror, film noir, and musicals that are unlike anything you'll see anywhere else.
1: I was reading about some titles that I think we've got to check out. Some Dolores Del Rio mm-hmm. noir that she did with Gavaldon sounds so good.
0: We don't have time to get into a huge Mexican cinema lesson here, but it is really a worthwhile journey, and I want to encourage everyone to take it if they can. It's a shame to me how even... Cinephiles are probably hard-pressed to come up with a very long list of Mexican titles they are familiar with or are favorites of theirs, much less just the average viewer who isn't obsessed with this stuff like we are. I really encourage people to not be limited to just what people like Sergei Eisenstein or Louis Bunuel made during their Mexican excursions. Those are a great way in, but keep going. There's so much more to find, and that applies to me too, because when I compare my knowledge of Mexican film, for instance, to my awareness of Japanese titles, let's say, I come up super short. And that's with me having a decent idea of what's out there.
1: Yeah, I don't think I avail myself of anywhere close to the number of programming options we have here locally.
0: Yeah, even with Mexico being in such obvious close physical proximity, the cinema culture there doesn't break through as often as I feel like it should. Do you feel like being in Texas we have at least a little bit of an advantage. Do you see it turning up in programming choices because someone might have grown up with that material or similar circumstances?
1: I don't know that Texas is the answer. I think Austin is the answer. Mm. It just seems like more of a film area. So I feel like if we were in some place like New York or Chicago or LA, we might have these same available options.
0: You're certainly right about our cup runneth over here. The Paramount Theater... They've done a little. I saw the Mexican classic silent film El Tren Fantasma there, which was just amazing. Austin Film Society, they've done a couple of programs focused on Mexican film. But I think we're especially lucky in Austin that we have a resource like Cine Los Americas. They offer a revolving roster of screenings all year that focus on Latino and indigenous filmmakers from the Americas, including their own annual festival, which is one of my favorite things every year. So I want to give a huge shout out to them. This stuff is there if we want it. It's just up to us to go get it. So how about your recommendation? Do you have another thing to lead us down that path?
1: Not exactly. I chose a teen favorite, and that's the 1954 animated version of George Orwell's Animal Farm. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Directed by Joy Batchelor and John Hallis, with Gordon Heath providing the narration and Morris Denham doing all the other character voices. I was going parable route here. Ah,
0: I see. Okay, that makes sense.
1: It's the age-old story of The King is Dead, Long Live the King in which a farmyard revolution creates a new tyranny in place of the old regime. I had just been thinking about this story again when I was doing my display at work for Banned Books Week, and unfortunately, the story never goes out of style, so check it out. Now, are you going to keep us in Day of the
0: Dead? Absolutely. And I chose Coco from 2017, and that's directed by Adrian Molina and Lee Unkrich, and it stars Anthony Gonzalez, Gail Garcia Bernal, Benjamin Bratt, Alana Ubach, René Victor, and lantern favorite Edward James Olmos. It's an animated film about a young boy who is mistakenly transported to the land of the dead, where he enlists the help of his deceased great-great-grandfather, a legendary musician to return him to the land of the living and help lift his family's ban on music. Now, this may seem like an obvious, low-hanging choice. Everybody knows about this movie, probably. But I choose it to underscore how significant I think it really is. This is a beautiful movie that I wish we would have had forever instead of just the past few years. That thing I was saying at the beginning about what a healthy thing it is to look at death in this way... This is the greatest encapsulation of that idea that I could imagine for a universal audience. And it serves such an important function, I think. In all of our young lives, at some point, we have to confront the idea that we don't go on forever the way we think of ourselves. The movie that did that for me was Watership Down, which I am eternally indebted to for that. I know there's a faction that probably sees that as a really traumatic experience for kids, that movie. But I never felt that way about it, even from when I was little. I always thought that its lyricism outweighed all of the rest of that, and when I think about what it taught me from a very young age, it makes me feel peaceful and appreciative. But imagine if all those kids for whom it might be too much had an option that was full of captivating color and sound and was joyful and also taught them a little something more about the world they live in. Coco is that movie. If somehow you haven't seen it yet, this is the best time of the year to go check it out, so I highly recommend that everyone does.
1: So once again, that's two great recommendations, Animal Farm and Coco.
0: And that brings us to the end of episode 144. First and foremost here, we want to thank Brent Calderwood for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. Thank you, Brent. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you, and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore Cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. The fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Mike Scharf, Laura Cannon and the Fatal Films Podcast, Jesse Dampolo, Spencer Seams at the We Cut Heads Podcast, James Lawler, and Brian Sauer over at the Just the Disc Podcast. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Another thank you to Brent Calderwood for also leaving us a very nice review on iTunes this time around. We're grateful for that as well. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.